Chapter Sixteen of East by West: A Journey in the Recess, Volume Two, by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen: Christmas at Cawnpore. With the thermometer at eighty in the shade, with roses blooming in the gardens by the wayside, and violets scenting the air in the memorial gardens, it is hard to believe that this is Christmas Day the imagination is not greatly helped by the scene around it is impossible with whatever good will to imagine trotty veck with his red comforter twisted round his head by way of turban a pair of trousers made out of a cotton duster and for all other clothing a bright yellow cloth hung about his shoulders nor is tiny tim to be recognised among the heap of half-clad children that swarm in the streets though heaven knows some of them are sickly enough when night falls the condition of affairs grows more homely it is cold enough for the most seasonable christmas weather unfortunately for comfort domestic arrangements in india at least as far as they are known to the wanderer in hotels do not recognise the contingency of christmas weather the great problem of life in india is how to keep cool and to its solution all the energy and ability of the house-builder are bent we dined last night at lucknow in a comparatively small room which had six doors and every one of them open there was a fireplace and some fire in it but it was set back well into the wall so as to secure the minimum of obtrusiveness the doors in houses here are not moderate-sized apertures such as serve at home they are slices out of the wall cut broad and high and it comes to pass that a dining-room is actually composed of a series of pillars the rest of the space being open doors this is delightful in the hot season and well enough in the daytime even at christmas but at night it creates discontent anglo-indians keep christmas time with the jealous affection with which they cherish everything that reminds them of home a sprig of mistletoe or a bough of holly would create unbounded enthusiasm could it find its way to an english bungalow to-day that is impossible but since it is the custom in england to deck houses and churches with evergreens on christmas day we have our show at cawnpore the porch of the veranda in which i sit at noon and write grateful for the shade is festooned with ropes of mango leaves with garlands and marigolds drooping from them running up the posts at the gate are two gigantic plantain leaves thus is every large house in cawnpore decked because of christmas day the memorial church is filled with the scent of roses of which thousands bloom on the pillars the arches the pulpit and the altar here too the mango leaf plays the part of holly and the plantain makes believe to be mistletoe walking out before breakfast this morning we met many servants hurrying along carrying to their master's friends the compliments of the season and big bunches of fragrant roses we spend our christmas day all by ourselves sole tenants of the hotel which by the way is an exceedingly pleasant and comfortable hostelry a rare thing in india it was formerly the officers mess-house 
and stands well back from the road in the shadow of monumental tamarind trees. It is called the Original United Service Hotel, whereby hangs a tale. The present proprietor had a house a short distance off called the United Service. Some time ago it was burnt down, whereupon a smart native opened another house for which he borrowed a name that stood in high repute with travellers to Cawnpore. This did very well, till another native opened a house which he called Number One United Service Hotel. This necessitated the first pirate numbering himself two, and now we have the original. The comfort which smiled through tiffin and made fresh promises for dinner, with the table prettily decorated with flowers, evergreens, and a generous bill of fare, was destined to suffer rude eclipse. It was the plum pudding that did it. If there had been no plum pudding, there would have been no catastrophe. As it was, the landlord, anxious that the day should pass off worthily, ordered a plum pudding, and gave into charge of the butler, as the head native servant is called in India, a tumbler half full of brandy. This the butler incontinently drank, and in the course of half an hour was hopelessly drunk. His baleful example spread with alarming rapidity. Every Christian servant on the premises, eager to do honour to the festival, got drunk. Only the Mohammedans, unbelievers, remained sober. Unhappily, I mean in this particular connection, the cook was a Christian, and had been overtaken before he had carried into full effort the generous intention of the bill of fare. The consequence was that practically we had no dinner, and the entertainment of watching the butler with his glance fixed on a distant object, walking up the room as if the floor were a tightrope, holding in his hand a hot water plate, from which the water either oozed out on the meat or trickled over his trousers, began to pall after the third course. The manager apologetically informed me on the following day that he had soundly thrashed the butler, a proceeding which, it appears, is becoming somewhat risky. "'You cannot lift your hand now to one of them fellows,' said the manager, with fine indignation, "'but they have you into court and your fine five rupees. "'It's perfectly scandalous, and will be worse. "'It's since this Ilbert bill has come on. "'It's very bad for us here, owing to the resident magistrate. "'It's Colonel Wheeler, whose sisters and father were slaughtered by Nana Sahib. "'Yet the man's as gentle with the natives as if they were English.' He listens to all they say, and as often as not goes with them. Once, when he was on leave, we had here another magistrate, who was a man. It was Colonel—blank. He had not been in office five days before he had turned every native out of it. If a native came up complaining that he had been thrashed by his master, he made short work of him, and the man didn't trouble to go back to court. I chimed in the manager's wife, with a sigh of regret— Colonel Blank was something like a magistrate. He was always just. Now, the manager continued, we can hardly call our house our own. Can't knock a fellow down if he's insolent. Can't thrash the cook if he's late with dinner. But I gave it the butler last night. 
and he daren't go to court, or they'd ask him where he got the brandy from. There was a gleam of comfort in this, but on the whole the good old times seemed to have departed from India, and the stereotyped notice posted in country hotels earnestly requesting guests not to ill-treat native servants, but to report delinquencies to the managers, is growing out of date. Cornpore is built much after the fashion of Lucknow, being spread over a considerable plain, breaking forth into streets of houses in unexpected places. It is a busy place, being the principal grain market in the district. It is also a headquarters of the cloth trade. There are two large cotton mills here, and a third is being built. But its interest for the English-speaking race centres round the places where is kept green the memory of Nana Sahib's cruel treachery. The story begins to be written on the bare space of ground where a few stones mark the lines of the camp where General Wheeler entrenched himself with his little army and his many camp followers. In the first week of June 1857, all India was in revolt, the fire burning most fiercely in Oud, whence the fiery cross had been sent round. Delhi was held by the rebels, and the descendant of the old Mughal kings had been tumultuously reinstated upon the throne. John Lawrence held the mutineers in check in the Punjab, but Henry Lawrence was already beleaguered in Lucknow, and there was not a native regiment in Oud that could be depended upon. On the 5th of June the crisis came at Cawnpore, and found General Wheeler entrenched in this ill-chosen quarter. All told, he had eleven hundred souls within the limits of his camp. Less than five hundred were fighting men, and Nana Sahib had surrounded the camp with an impenetrable ring of thirty thousand men. Wheeler had thrown up a wall of mud well enough to keep an ill-disciplined rabble out, but no protection against the rain of bullets and the incessant cannonading kept up from the camp of the mutineers. At first he had two buildings which served for partial shelter, not so much from the fire of the enemy as from the deadly heat of the sun, and from the rains which had commenced. These buildings were speedily levelled by Nana Sahib's batteries, and there remained for the hapless refugees nothing but the bare ground and the open sky. At the end of three weeks, when hundreds had died and the rest were starving, the crafty Hindu proposed terms of capitulation, which were surprisingly generous. The troops were to march out, stacking their rifles, but wearing their side-arms. They were to be escorted to the riverside, where they were to take boat, and make the best of their way to Allahabad. The road by which they started on this fatal march is clearly enough marked to-day. It follows a direct line for the Sooty Ghat passing under the high road at a short distance from the river. After the rainy season a rivulet finds its way by this course to the Ganges, and it must have been heavy marching for Wheeler's men and the women and children who accompanied them. It is dry enough to-day, a dusty pathway through an arid plain. The ghat by which the sick and weary company took boat was at that time a busy landing-place. At the top of the steps is the little temple and sooty house which gives the ghat its name. Other spots connected with the tragedy have been swept and garnished and are guarded as sacred memorials, 
but the slaughter-gate through which the unsuspecting men and women went to their doom has been left untouched as an accursed thing. The temple is doorless and windowless. The house behind, where a faithful Hindu widow was long time ago, burned with the head of her dead lord on her knee, is crumbling to pieces, and the tomb in which husband and wife lie undivided in death is broken and defaced. The steps of the ghat are half an inch thick with dust, undisturbed by the tread of human foot. The two people trees which witnessed the murder still flourish, and doubtless are green enough after the rains, but just now the leaves are dust-laden and parched, and the grey gnarled trunks lean over towards the river as if they had long been tired of life, and would above all things like to tumble into its cool depths. The place is indescribably lonely and desolate. Standing by the temple, there is plainly in view the bend of the river behind which Nana Sahib had hid his guns. A little lower down on the other side of the river lay in ambuscade a regiment of rebels, charged with the duty of slaying all whom the cannon spared. Three boatloads got off, and rode for a thousand yards in fancied security, and with lightened hearts at the thought that their troubles were now over, that no more would they see the terrible camp, with its hunger and thirst, its houselessness, its never-ceasing rain of bullets, and its frequent thunderstorm of artillery. Just round the point the slaughter began. The boats were sunk with cannon-shot, and those who escaped and tried to reach the land were pitilessly shot by the troops on the other side of the river. General Wheeler, some of his officers, and most of the women, had been halted under a tree which still stands eight or nine hundred yards distant from the ghat. When they heard the firing, they knew what had happened, and fled in wild affright along the main road, but the cavalry speedily hunted them down. The men were shot like dogs and the women and children carried off to Nana Sahib's house. Had Wheeler been able to hold out a few days longer, all would have been well. Havelock was already on the march, his nearer approach being made the signal for an episode which is the darkest act in the hurried tragedy. On the eve of going out to give battle to the English general, Nana Sahib issued orders for the massacre of the women. They were invited to leave the house under pretence of being conducted to a place of safety. But they had had enough of the Hindu's clemency. They refused to move, and were shot by volleys fired through the windows, sepoys entering sword in hand and completing the work. This done, they were dragged out, dead and dying, women and children, and cast into a well that stood opposite the house. There they were found, when Havelock's men, having utterly routed Nana Sahib, entered the town, flushed with the generous hope of rescue. The memorial church stands just outside the entrenchment of Wheeler's camp. It is a substantial rather than a handsome structure, built of red brick faced with sandstone. Round the chancel is a row of memorial tablets, set there, quote, to the glory of God, and in memory of more than a thousand Christian people who met their deaths hard by between the 6th of June 
and the fifteenth of july eighteen fifty seven as already mentioned the church is to-day decorated for the christmas festival and over this memorial of massacre there runs a garland proclaiming with grim but undesigned irony peace on earth and goodwill among men near the altar rail is a pretty marble font sent as an offering by the queen as we stood in the church reading the names of the victims of the mutiny we could hear the cheers of the british soldiers in the barracks welcoming their officers who had looked in upon their christmas dinner of roast beef and plum pudding the barracks built since the mutiny stand not far from the house which was nana sahib's headquarters at a time when he was treating for the capitulation of a british general and believed that within twenty-four hours cawnpore would see the last of the english soldier the memorial garden is separated from the church by a space big enough to hold the city of cawnpore if the people could by any means be induced to dwell in neighbourly fashion at the time of the mutiny the well served the needs of a few straggling houses which in the eccentric disposition of the town happened to find themselves here now only a marble cross set in a grass plot dark in the shadow of solemn yews marks the site of the butchery whilst the well itself is a prominent object in a rich and well-ordered garden when havelock reached cawnpore and found this terrible truth at the bottom of the well it was too late to furnish christian burial to nana sahib's victims the well was bricked over and in due time there has risen upon the site a beautiful marble figure an angel with sad face yet not sorrowing as those that have no hope but carrying in either hand the palm of victory over the gateway of the enclosure which surrounds this solemn burial place is written these are they who came out of great tribulation round the base of the statue runs the inscription sacred to the perpetual memory of a great company of christian people chiefly women and children who near this spot were cruelly massacred by the followers of the rebel nana dumdopunt of bithwur and cast the dying with the dead into the well below on the fifteenth july eighteen fifty seven in strange contrast with the scene recalled by these words is the aspect of to-day with the sun shining down on bright flowers green grass and lusty trees and all around the peace and goodwill of christmas day End of chapter 16